Hi, this is episode 38, and it's part one of a two-part episode. Part two is going to be episode 40, so enjoy. Hey, how's it going? This is Champagne Sharks. This is T. On Twitter, you can find me at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S, no underscore. And I have two guests with me today. Uh, D Mills will be joining us in a couple of minutes, but we have with us, I'll do an alphabetical order, Kam Kunyoching. If you can introduce yourself. Oh, hello. Uh, it's calm. Can you sing? Can you sing? Um, uh, go ahead. Is there anything you want to share about your uh, contact info, what you do, what you uh, specialize in? Uh, I specialize in comics and ethnicity in American literature. Um, I work outside of academia, but I have a, f- a foot in it so that I teach one class a term at a community college and... I continue to publish academically, often collaborating with Carter, um, and I continue to go to academic conferences. So I'm kind of an alt-ac. Um, I don't think I have any. I, I can give you my uh, community college email address. It's k-k-u-n-y-o-s-y-i-n-g at ccsnh.edu if anybody needs it. Great. And we also have Carter Souls. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name's Carter, and uh, I am fully within academia. I am uh, on the tenure track in a uh, small college up in upstate New York, where I teach film studies. And um, I got interested in identity studies when I was a graduate student, and all my work really is either dealing in one way or another with identity uh, and then I'm also kind of doing some stuff with environmental cinema uh, as well lately. But um, yeah, so so um, I'm really happy to be here. And anyone wanting to contact me can do so at C-S-O-L-E-S at Brockport, B-R-O-C-K-P-O-R-T dot E-D-U. Great, great. And... I want to have you both on the show for an article of yours that I stumbled on. It was funny. I was doing a search for something else, and the article <laughs> popped up, and the title jumped out at me, and I thought it was incredibly good. The article is called Postmodern Geekdom Assimilated Ethnicity, and I've actually used um, some insights from your article in past podcast episodes, and I've linked to it in the show notes. And then it occurred to me, why don't I just take a shot and go straight to the source and talk to the authors of the article? And I'm glad that you guys um, agreed to come on. One of the episodes where I discussed this article was where I was talking about um, minority nerddom and how the kind of conflicts that kind of arise in it and what i'd like to start off with is have you guys just you know give a breakdown of the article how it came to be the premise of it and we'll just take it from there after that sounds good um well i can start just by saying the article um evolved over kind of a long period of time calm and i met when we were at graduate school and while we were there we you know we're both scholars who study uh forms of geek media so uh calm uh, mainly studies comics and i mostly study cinema but especially independent cinema of the you know late 80s early 90s uh you know kevin smith and jim jarmish and spike lee and so forth uh so uh we just bonded over that and just started having you know the kind of conversations that 
for example, I hear on your podcast, you know, just they start out of these kind of informal talks about what we're thinking about. And then we start realizing we've kind of got all these ideas floating around and nothing to do with them. So we, um, I don't know, I guess it would have been mid 2000s. We just started kind of writing some things down and formalizing it a little. And that eventually gelled into the postmodern geekdom article, which we published in Jump Cut in uh, 2012. And what was the origin of it? Like, as far as, um, let me rephrase that. What did you start the research at? Like, where did you guys, because I find it very accurate, but also prescient. Like, I feel like there's a lot of current articles trying to cover these same topics, but the people are kind of playing catch up. And I see a lot of things are getting wrong. So when I see this article in 2012, get so many things right. I feel like you guys must have had your finger on the pulse somewhere. So I was wondering what were your sources besides just um, other articles and books? I think melodrama was one of the keys. Um, so in terms of theorizing that, that comes from Carter's work with Kathleen Carlin. So maybe I'll throw it back to him to explain that. But but from well, before oh, sure. I throw it back, the, just the idea that people needed to authenticate themselves by emphasizing their suffering and not just marginalized people, but pretty much everyone. Right. There's that uh, quote we put at the beginning of the, the article from Judd Apatow, right? And I think he's a key figure in this, at least for me, because... Um, at the time that I was spending a lot of time learning about melodrama and feminist film theory and so forth, which, which I can circle back to, um, around the time me and Com started really talking about this stuff in earnest, there was kind of an explosion of, you know, popular geek media. This is, this is like right around 2007 or six, you know? And so the whole team Apatow thing was just happening and knocked up was a huge runaway hit. And then I guess the Marvel universe is getting started around that same time, the Marvel cinematic universe. So it's like all this geek media is being really thrown on our faces. Um, but the work that Com is referring to with melodrama is, um, yes, I learned about it from my mentor, Kathleen Carlin, but both of us kind of uh, took, took our cue from Linda Williams. Uh, she's a film scholar who writes about the influence of melodrama in American cinema, but also in American culture writ large. And melodrama, we all kind of have at least a kind of a basic understanding of what that is. It's sort of the soap opera idea of, a, of playing to people's emotions, trying to bring in audiences through feelings, not necessarily logic, but feelings. And so um, Williams outlines several characteristics of melodrama, but, but a couple of the most important ones as far as what me and Com noticed was happening in geek culture uh, were, number one, melodrama always takes as its hero someone who suffers. That is, she calls it a victim hero. So to be a sympathetic hero, you have to be a victim hero. And in the olden days, this often was a woman, uh, like in the women's pictures of, say, the 30s and the 40s or even still in romantic comedy or certain types of film genres, you can see that. Um, but increasingly we see men taking that role and you get the melodramatic male, you get, you know, this stuff started at least in film with guys like James Dean and Marlon Brando, the sort of suffering men who, you know, were also method actors and really dug into their own pain to con create these, you know, very overdetermined kind of performances. But anyway, it started there. And I think, you know, by the time we get to something like Knocked Up or, or whatever, the the culture was very prepared to accept a very sympathetic, suffering, geeky male as kind of a new sensitive alternative to the more jockish leading man of, of a previous era. So that was kind of the fundamental insight, I think, that started me and Calm on our path. And I like how you guys have a very nuanced discussion of, the kind of toxicity 
that can be in there because I think a lot of times um, a lot of the writing on this stuff kind of romanticizes or buys into the chief conceit of the narrative of, you know, it's the call of the underdog. And yes, one thing that I like that you guys talk about is you mention that there is a level of privilege that these white males have access to that kind of goes unacknowledged. And you have several lines about how they're getting benefits from the same system that they claim to be critiquing and wanting to uh, Mm -hmm. tear down. So yes, I wanted to hear more about uh, that observation about, and, and, and I'll add a second part to the question. Do you think it would, uh, assuming this victim status or getting this kind of what I call oppression envy would be as enticing if they weren't getting these benefits as well? Like if they were actual <laughs> full victims? <laughs> it's a good que- that, there's the big question. Um, for the first part of the question, I think it gets... It's getting more intense now because actually mainstream culture is geek culture. And so it becomes doubly ironic that that geeks are trying to focus on their identities as uh, marginalized in light of that, especially in the years after our article came out. And then for the second part, um, I think they would not. They so let me let me try to see whether I understand correctly your question. Um, they would not want to accept any real marginalization. Is that a part of the answer to your question? Uh, yes, yes, and and I wanted to know if part of the reason why they enjoy seeking out this victim status is because they know it's not they're not really victims like if they were really victims do you think it would be as appealing to um play this game so to speak this kind of uh play acting as as being disaffected huh. or um oppressed? i i think not not for the idea of of being a victim but i think they might want to play act as far as it allows them into uh, a group that they can identify with. Um, so this might get to your question about geeks who are people of color. They might want to join in with the white geeks, even the white geek idea of marginalization, because it would allow them to be part of another identity that might not have as many penalties on it as, say, their identity as a person of color. Mm. I'm glad you said that because you actually anticipated um, another question I was going to ask. Because one thing that uh, we talk about on this show a lot is that we talk about how there's this idea that I think comes along with a lot of... um, Well, there's a real intersectionality that's that's in the academic world, that's in that sphere that's very nuanced and well thought out but there's also this kind of more shallow geek intersectionality which kind of um really i don't want to use the word dumb dumbs down but i can't think of a better term that kind of dumbs down the more nuanced points of the uh, academic version of intersectionality where they just kind of take oppressed identities and treat them as additive like you know like oh i'm black and I'm queer. Oh wait, I'm black. <laughs> I'm queer, and I'm a woman. I win. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we call mm-hmm. that misery poker, or or maybe oppression poker, or something. Oh, that's a good. That's a good. That's a good term. So, so I think that's Com's term, but you know, uh, that's a very good. That's a very good term. And, and when you read the original literature, it's it's um. When you read the original literature, I was very surprised when I went back to the original literature, and I was like, "This is very different than the Tumblr version that I'm seeing." And it, mm. yeah, and it makes me. Um, and we formed this 
phrase that we call get with the winning team, where it's like a lot of black people think, okay, I'm seeing gays kind of leapfrogging us because you see the uh, gay marriage uh, equality act and you see the White House being lit in a rainbow. You would never see Obama flash a red, black and green on uh on the white house it just wouldn't happen and they, and they right. see um other people kind of going past them and they kind of think oh if i'm going to be oppressed if i can jump on board with some other oppressed groups that are passing me i'll feel like i'm getting kind of on the winning team so what comp said i think yes. very much ties into that like when when these geeks are getting this type of dominance their assumed ethnicity almost becomes more appealing than my real ethnicity, because at least their assumed ethnicity is mm-hmm. making headway. That mm-hmm. my real ethnicity is. Oh, wow. Well said. Not. Yeah. So I, I'm very glad you anticipated huh. uh, what I was going to say. You I did notice that after the article came out or during writing it, two of the people who resisted my ideas or our, our shared ideas the most were female geeks. That I, one I encountered, I taught a class called Geek Culture at the University of Oregon. And the, the, a female geek in the class was super resistant because she really wanted to elevate all of her male geek friends as these sort of underdog heroes. And the other person was actually a grad student, but who was in a, in a department that was connected to English um, folklore. And she was a ceramics person and she just loved the Big Bang Theory. And she really felt she, she felt that it expressed geek identity in, a, in an earnest and sincere way. And she actually kind of defriended me after after our article came out because she couldn't she couldn't take our take on it. But yeah, so I think in both of those cases, these are people who embrace their geek culture, like you're saying, and kind of were able to turn a blind eye to how geek culture is misogynistic on a lot of levels. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be fair, there are people who have experienced, you know, real pain in their lives or have been socially ostracized who, you know, maybe very rightfully find a lot of comfort in their fandoms or their geekdoms (laughs) or whatever. And, and of course, we're not out to, you know, blanketly or callously, you know, you know, dismiss that. I, I'm a fan of certain things and I forgive those things, you know, to an extent. The difference is though that, you know, given my training and now what I'm writing about and focusing on, I, I do try to bear in mind, I, not to, you know, reach that point where you're so defensive that you're creating a blind spot or you're refusing to see how, you know, frankly, there's very little pop culture that isn't complicit in some form of, you know, supporting the hegemony, supporting, you know, I I think on your Blurred's uh, podcast, you said something about how even the fans who weep over Black Panther are ultimately still putting money in the hands of the white producers who make, you know, the Marvel Universe. And I thought that was really insightful. So we're all complicit. So it means the pain isn't unreal, but good, good Lord, you know, I share that feeling that some of these fans get so crazy and so defensive and, and they just, there's like this weird emotional bond they have with, with their fandom that doesn't permit, you know, blasphemy to be spoken or something. Yeah. You really see in message, not even message boards, but in articles where there's a review of some, um, comic book movie coming out. And if, if the Mm -hmm. article is remotely negative, what's interesting is a lot of times, the people who are angry in the comments haven't even seen the movie yet and they're going crazy they're doing right. death threats and then you're like wow you haven't even seen this movie you have no idea if it's even good or not why are you getting this, this? i mean even if you did see the movie right. getting this angry would be kind of weird but yeah the fact that you haven't and you're getting this angry is is crazy but, but here's the thing i want to ask right because i don't know if we've done this yet can you give an overview of the article like a quick summary of the whole thing because you know for people who haven't read it we're kind of discussing parts of it but i don't know if we've ever yet discussed the cohesive whole of the premise of the article sure do you want me to do that com or do you want it you can go ahead and start unless you prefer i do it okay i'll start and then i'll i'll hand over the baton okay 
Um, the, the core premise of our article, Postmodern Geekdom as Simulated Ethnicity, is that at some historical point in time, which I think we're kind of locating sometime in the 1970s or the 60s, maybe, uh, and maybe there are other examples that would, would ruin our, our origin point there, but certainly by the 70s, um, that geeks were becoming prevalent enough as pop cultural figures, um, and not, well, not just pop cultural, but let's just say cultural figures, because, for example, our article traces the rise, the historical rise of this geek in different media. So, for example, we have in mainstream cinema, who becomes the sort of undisputed master of American cinema around about 1975 and 77. It's, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, you know, and collectively those two release something like the seven or eight most profitable films of the next decade. Um, and so there's this sense in which white geeks kind of literally take over uh, mainstream film. But then meanwhile, as Com's work has shown, you're also seeing a kind of emergence of the geek in alternative and other comics as well. And certain figures like maybe Art Spiegelman or especially R. Crumb kind of mark a, a moment in, in, you know, alternative comics where also male geekdom is is being put in focus. So our argument is that starting with this historical rise of the geek in culture, this thing starts happening where we start finding geeks much more sympathetic and worthy of our emotional investment. So before that, they would be sort of an outsider or an outcast. And maybe in, for I'm going to use mostly film examples and Com can broaden this out a little bit, but, but you know, you have outcasts and geeks like for example charlie chaplin's tramp character or or the the glasses wearing character that harold lloyd always played in the silent comedies in, in the teens and 20s but those guys were always understood to be social outcasts and and we rooted for them but they always kind of stayed on the outside or or maybe in the the last real harold lloyd's character would sort of be accepted by the cool jocks or whatever but for the most part, they remained outsider figures. This thing we're talking about in the 70s is different. The geek starts moving into the middle and, in fact, displacing the more, I guess, jockish type character who would have been, been in the center of most of our popular narratives at the time. And when I say jock, and I suppose I should now define a few terms, and then maybe I'll let com explain the the rest of it but but our terminology we're using so we we talk about geeks and geek melodrama to kind of refer to this melodramatization of the geek or infusing him with victimhood so that he is more emotionally accessible to us and more sympathetic but we also talk in that article about slackers and some other related types that kind of emerged at various points in along with the geek. So the slacker kind of has their renaissance, say, in the late 80s, early 90s. We start seeing the slacker emerge as the kind of constant partner of the geek. And you see a lot of buddy films made in the 80s and 90s, especially uh, in the independent sector, where you have a geek and a slacker. So a geek is just somebody who's really passionate about their fandoms, maybe a little socially awkward, Whereas a slacker isn't as passionate about those fandoms, but is actually more of a classic ne'er-do-well or, or rake-type character, but sort of transformed into this 90s-era, disaffected, Generation X-type slacker, who's very media-literate, but not necessarily a passionate fan the way geeks usually are. And uh, can you give a few examples and then continue? Just oh, sure, sure, absolutely. And again, I'll, I'll draw... Yeah, I'll I'll draw a few from from my film world, and then I'll, then I'll really will hand it over to Com, and he can fill in from some other media. But um, in the on the movies end of this thing, I mean, Star Wars alone or 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 Jaws definitely both have geek slacker type pairings. So um, in in the case of say Star Wars, obviously Luke is the geek. Luke is kind of a slightly nerdy, socially awkward farm boy, 
But he is so geekily passionate about piloting, right? And learning things about the Force or Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever it may be, that he's definitely a, a kind of a, almost an exact copy of, of, of somebody like the Karate Kid. You know, it's no uh, coincidence that, that Star Wars comes out with these sort of sword-wielding lightsaber samurai around the time of the big boom in, you know, interest in martial arts, interest in Dungeons and Dragons, and, and so forth. So, uh, anyway, so I think Luke and Han are a geek slacker pairing. Luke Skywalker, Han Solo. I think, um, you know, moving to the indie sector, practically every Kevin Smith film ever made, Dante and Randall, Dante and Randall are, are a classic geek slacker. Um, there's, uh, ones in Richard Linklater's, uh, uh, What's that? The one in the seventies, Days and Confused, Days and Confused. But you can see these, you know, all through uh, the eighties and into the nineties. Uh, maybe Com, you could help me with some examples not from film. Well, in the article, we zeroed in on Night Owl and Rorschach as the protagonists of Watchmen. Night Owl being the geek and Rorschach being the slacker, but both versions of this postmodern suffering hero who's not a jock and you know the villain of the of the book ozymandias is kind of the jock the unmarked unsuffering hero um and we also talked about how other uh binary pairings of heroes started to mimic the geek slacker pairing in watchmen including um brian michael bennis's powers Christian Walker and Dina Pilgrim and Daniel Clovis's Ghost World has Enid Kloslaw and Rebecca Doppelmeyer. Mm -hmm. ah, yeah. I mm -hmm. forgot about and them. Yeah, even Batman and Robin start to begin to to take on that aspect. A lot of superheroes that were that were not dark, you know, started to become dark after Watchmen came out and started to interrogate their identities with these types of more authentic markings of suffering. Um, so who would be the who would be the geek and who would be the slacker in um, Batman and Robin? Batman would be the geek. Robin might be the slacker. Um, but you know what? I I might I, I might just use the Kurt Busiek does a better job in a way when he does his Batman and Robin. I don't know if you read his series Astro City. Yeah, I've read it in the past. He mm -hmm. kind of makes analogs of the mainstream DC and Marvel heroes. And because of his characters, he has more freedom to explore the dynamics than he would at um, one of the big two companies. Yeah, and actually, you know what? Um, I, I should review. I think I would make the case for Batman and Joker, actually, um, now that I'm remembering. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Joker's yes, a slacker, Joker's Batman, a slacker, and Joker sure. have this deep homosocial bond that that resembles the geek slacker pairing as we've written about it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's both homosocial and I think it's also um homoerotic. Like there's a lot of queer baiting that happens now mm. now when it actually but you know what? Let me not even go there because then that'll take into a whole different um <laughs> topic. I want to I want to stay on the uh topic of of this, unless you think it's somehow relevant to, um, Oh, I think it is. I mean, we can spend our time how we want to spend our time, but it, I was hoping to get some geek misogyny talk in eventually. So I think gender and sexuality are absolutely at play in geek culture. I mean, hardcore, you know, Gamergate alone, right? Yes. Yes. Because actually, yeah, you're right. It does relate because that queer baiting, I think, is not done to be flattering to actual queer people, but more as no. a way to make it extra menacing. Like, you know, there's... I forget what it's called, but I know they bring it up with Disney characters, how a lot of times the villains are kind of queer-coded to kind of yes. create an extra level of uh, menace. And I think that kind of queer-baiting and queer-coding that they do with the Batman and Joker kind of relates a little bit more on the misogyny racism and homophobia of that uh stereotypical white male middle class fan base that's being pandered to in this work i know it's a lot of that geek yes. culture does have that um 
going on with it too. And I find it interesting that a lot of queer fans kind of take it complimentary and will like make gifs on Tumblr about it. And to me, I think it's a lot of it they're not realizing maybe because as being geeks themselves, they're kind of internalizing maybe Ah. maybe unconsciously a lot of the messed up dynamics. Because I think black people do this too when they become geeks. They internalize a lot of the messed up dynamics without knowing it and then right reframing into a positive not realizing definitely negative connotations behind it i wanted to uh this is uh this is d mills guys uh pleasure thank you for coming on to the show and talking with us um mm-hmm. oh no oh, thank you no for problem. having thank us you. um i just wanted to ask you this i don't know if you had covered it earlier <clears throat> But how do you see these dynamics play out in this genre of horror? Because I know horror has actually gone through a few different um, a few different trends over the last ten to twenty years. Um, we've had a recent resurgence of like the slasher genre and things like that. So I was wondering, you know, how do these dynamics uh, of the geek and the um, slacker play out in you know in terms of horror films? I like. Go for it, Carter. This is, I was just about <laughs> well, to say this would be um, Carter's question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm a horror fan, actually. Oh, me too, man. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah. Um, I'm a bit of a snooty horror fan these days, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but I, for example, really, really enjoyed uh, Get Out uh, immensely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I think one of the things, I, of course, here I'm defaulting to the, sl- the slasher, but I'll just do that for a second. Because I think often when we say horror films, that's kind of the thing we go to first, maybe. I don't know. Is that that slasher paradigm? But what's interesting to me is that the slasher, um, on the one hand, you know, there's kind of two figures at the heart of the slasher. One is the, I guess we'd imagine her to be more the protagonist, the, the female you know, final girl or the girl who's going to survive all this stuff. Um, So there's her who usually compared to her friends is geekier. Right. So she typically, you know, she's like good, good at school or whatever, like Laurie Strode or whatever. Um, That's not always the case, but often. Um, But then the killer I don't know if the killer is exactly a slasher or something. See, there we go. Slacker. <laughs> they're definitely a slasher. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know if they're a slacker too often, in part because something I've become really aware of is even when they're set in cities, I'm kind of convinced that horror is kind of a fundamentally rural or wildernessy genre where the monster always kind of has to emerge, even in a city from like, places that are a little more liminal or, or whatever. I'm thinking here of like, uh, uh, what was that fun one? It, it follows, it follows, you know, yeah, the, 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 Oh, I, I enjoyed too. that one as well. But yeah, there's always, you know, but I actually like that. But go ahead. <laughs> true. True. Well, see, I don't know. So I, I guess all I want to say is that, uh, it may be more that you see geeks and hillbillies. The final mm. girl is a geek. Whereas the slasher killer often is identified with kind of hillbillyish or white trashish mm, kind of characteristics. I was, you know, what I, that's. But but this is a working thesis, no, man. No, I don't no, know. I, one of the things know. that I was thinking about when I was actually formulating the question in my head was um, a lot of times, especially in the slasher genre, if you without going into the more um, Jason Voorhees creature type slashers and sticking to the more human element of the slasher um a lot of times i wonder if the 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 slasher is a more um darker unchained version of the geek you know geek them taken to a dark place so you have these two contrasting geeks for what, for lack of a better term, where you have the main protagonist, who, as you pointed out earlier, mm-hmm. is usually the, the female, and she's a bit more geeky than her friends. And then you have the extreme of yeah. that. That's a great, that's a great question yep. because, yeah, a lot of them are persecuted. Right. 
uh, in their origin Definitely. stories and kind of like oh, are ostracized. Yes. And then it's yeah, kind I of like a great If you look at Psycho. The people who get it well spotted are the, are the jocks and the, the, the so quote, quote, loose girls, the popular mm-hmm. girl. They get it really bad in traditional slasher films. Yeah. Good point. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. true. Oh. Well spotted. You're so oh, right. You know what's a good, you know good tie-in to tie it back to this article is um, if the slashers are the geeks and they're going against the jocks, mm-hmm. and a lot of times the black guys were the yeah. first ones to get killed too, and they're oh, going, against, of course. going against the hot girl, then... Is that an example of that? Um, I forgot what you guys called in your article, but the mistaken <laughs> attraction. There's this theme that goes in the article about how the white women are attracted mm-hmm. to the mm. wrong men. The wrong yeah, guy. The shallow, the shallow men. And that the geek is uh, kind of angry about that and wants to punish both of them. The, the jock and the black guy and the white woman for choosing them or fraternizing with them. So I think it's a good segue to go into that that part of the um, article. Yeah, I think it, I, th- I like that read, and if, I think in Psycho, the geek is a tortured guy, and even yeah. even Jason Voorhees, you brought up. Yeah, he's picked on. He's picked on, and in the reboot of Halloween by Rob Zombie, that is the main thing that Rob Zombie adds to the movie is to show how how. Uh, is it Michael Michael Myers? Yeah, Michael, Michael Myers, Myers is this picked on kid who retaliates and he inscribes the geek melodrama onto Halloween. So yeah, I think it matches really well. And 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 Halloween in the Rob Zombie version is about women who pick the wrong guy getting punished quite a bit. So yeah, it fits it fits perfectly in my opinion. Nice. I think a lot of that kind of shows in hip hop too. And what I mean by that is if you look at the turn of hip hop from what it was before Eminem to after Eminem, I think it's kind of interesting that when a white guy comes into hip hop and kind of takes it over and makes it connect with the way bigger audience than it had before, he comes in kind of as a geek. His whole thing is he's almost like a school shooter or a mass shooter in his raps. If you listen to it, he's kind of that geek who was picked on and his, his whole original identity was about he hated the boy bands who were kind of like the jocks or the cool kids. He hated Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. He's always dissing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I it, and that's what I think is so great about this article. It's so absolutely able to be applied to so many things. Well, I, I never thought about the Eminem connection until I read your, read your article. And I and he he came back in the news, right? And then uh, right. prepping the show, <laughs> it was a it was a connection they only made like yesterday, right? Because he's but, but even in, <laughs> even in rap geeks are uh, kind of cool now. Indeed, well, that's a really insightful connection there. Um, yeah, it continues with Drake too. If you look at Drake, uh-huh. Drake's always mm-hmm. about you know girls who spurn him and you know right. diss them for the for the cool guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before it was like the jocks and the cool guys who were the rappers. I, I smell a part two. I smell a part two of this article right. coming. But you <laughs> used <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you do because the thing you just said uh, that you used the word to describe Eminem. You said he's kind of like a school shooter. Well, think about the language we use to describe school shooters or even this guy in Las Vegas. It's the it's the misunderstood loner bullshit. And you know, and I've been reading things where they they talk about how that's actually a cover up, so that we're that's how we talk about white shooters only right is there they they can be explained away because they're some sort of misunderstood loner well that's geek melodrama right there but only white shooters get away with that yeah it's very true you know um because they don't have those other complexities of other identities coming in and messing that up and then you look at you look at it at a real life example of somebody like an elliot roger and all of those dynamics come into play uh, to to one di- degree or another, um, social outcast, kind of geekish, um, and then he has the double identity of being half Asian, half white, 
So he has his own internal struggles with that. Yes. And then uh, race comes into it because he had some some racial issues with some of the more uh, masculine, popular black kids that he grew up with. And then, of course, the revenge against the women, you know. Um, right. So, yeah, that, that's a real life example of, of some of those dynamics coming into fruition. Yeah, and his rantings talked about black guys a lot. He was very annoyed with uh, mm-hmm. white women choosing uh, black men over him. Oh. Yeah, well, right. So they were just repeating the old birth of a nation myth over and over that the terror that white culture has of of racial intermixing, Uh, which, of course, Trump is just enabling. Yes, yes. I wanted to read a passage from um, your article and follow it with a question. I think this is a great passage. It says, according to cultural theorist Richard Dyer, whiteness connotes spirituality, intellect, Enterprise. Geeks are by definition enterprising. That is precisely what make what marks them as uncool from the jock or slacker point of view. And indeed, even the name Enterprise has been associated with space travel and sci-fi geekdom since the 60s. Strong spiritual elements saturate geek texts in the form of kung fu, karate, encounters with extraterrestrials, or simply the force. The geek imagines himself a peaceful warrior with immense power and a finesse, sensitivity, and interior world that his brutish jock competitors lack. This sensitivity, spirituality, and intelligence comes in exchange for sexual prowess, which is the one thing the more athletic and conventionally attractive men have that the geek typically doesn't. No matter his intellectual gifts or proclivities toward accomplishment, the geek is always by definition, sexually inferior to the jock and feels that inferiority deeply. Sexuality is itself racialized and so we can place the white male geek on a racial and gender continuum that situates him between, on the one hand, male jocks and black males who are stereotypically considered more embodied, sexual, and animalistic and on the other hand, Asian male geeks who are stereotypically considered even more rational and less sexual than white male geeks. Now, oh, and it adds, um, it affects the females more than it does the male counterparts. For example, stereotypically Asian females are hypersexualized, while right. Asian males are hyposexualized. And what I want to ask based on this passage is, this is something that uh, Dee and I have discussed a lot. Um, we've always said, we always wonder who has it worse in geek media, black males or Asian males, because in the middle class white imagination, right? Uh, black men are kind of treated as a caricature of masculinity, whereas Asian men, it's a sub, it's a subhuman caricature of manhood, but it's still allowed to be kind of a man, whereas the Asian man is almost not recognized as a man at all. And, and I think it ties into like Elliot Rogers. He kind of had both going on as both a white geek and an uh, right. So, well spotted. Yeah, I was curious what you guys thought about uh, that. How, the a- how does this affect a black male geek or an Asian male geek having to enjoy this world but still absorb these messages? I think it's probably, to answer your question, easier for the Asian male geek um, to get accepted because he has perhaps just a more intense version of what the white geek perceives as being his own marginalization. Um, and then he, the white geek perhaps feels like it is open season in terms of making fun of the Asian male geek, but it's only, it's only a version of what they perceive jocks making fun of them as white geeks. Um, Kevin Smith's comic book men is a really good example of that. I, I just looked at it. I, I couldn't watch it very much, but they have an they have an Asian guy that they always pick on. But he's still one of them. They let him along. Um but yeah, he is he's the one who's even geekier than the geeks in, in a in a show about geek comic book readers. Um I think it's probably more brutal to be a black male geek because he has to navigate around the the stereotypes about jocks and the the stereotypes about them are just more dehumanizing as far as they're more dangerous um you know um 
just thinking about, oh, I was reading an article about police perceptions of race, right? That's a pretty bad topic these days or uh, important topic these days. And apparently if they see an Asian guy in the car, sometimes they feel relaxed because, you know, stereotypes about Asian men are that we're nonviolent or, or docile, which is, I can see how that's dehumanizing, as you mentioned, but that doesn't suck as bad as, as being a cause of adrenaline in the police officer, you know? (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to tell you. (laughs) Yeah. And so much racial, so much racial hatred is like fused with sexual anxiety that I guess when, when a man is considered almost not a man, as far as being a sexual Mm -hmm. threat, that kind of relaxes a lot of that racial animosity, uh, too. Cause because one thing that's come into vogue recently among the alt-right and all those um, Trump fans, all throughout 2016, it was just cuckolds, cuck, cuck, cuck. And it was a really oh, interesting right. uh, fixation how much cuckold language surrounded the rise of uh, Trump for his fan base. This idea that he was going to save them from being mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely aimed at, at black males um, and the threat that they pose in these people's minds. And there are some Asian um, geeks who participate like in alt-right-esque forums. It may be changing now that the alt-right is becoming so pro-white and they're kind of like, you know, yes. uh, getting rid of certain people. They're getting rid of, say, Milo Yiannopoulos as well in, in some ways. So he's they're getting rid of a gay person. Um, but yeah, in the history of, of some of these alt-right Reddit forums, there were a couple Asian guys and that, that probably does coincide with how, um, we were analyzing the mass shooters. There are a couple Asian guys in there. Like you pointed out, Elliot, um, I forget his last name, uh, Elliot Rogers. But then there's also saying Hui Cho, Cho, I believe from, uh, Virginia Tech, right? You know, the Virginia Tech shooter is a, a Korean, right? And he, if you look at the stuff he was writing about, he was buying into the, to the geek melodrama too, and his suffering or his inability for anybody to recognize his true worth. Yes. I think in a way it probably damages Asian and black male who internalize this, um, assumed wait, this, uh, simulated ethnicity thing, because like we said, um, earlier, the white guy, at the end of the day on some level still realizes that he's white and male and is, and is absorbing yes. some privilege. Like he knows to a degree he's kind of a sham. So he can kind of, play act as the victim but when that um asian or black male geek is absorbing that extra simulated ethnicity he doesn't get to you know traffic in the white privilege at the same time either it's he probably hits a, a wall because of that well said. yeah i know elliot roger kind of had that problem he felt like i'm half white i should be able to be treated more like a white person he had a lot of hate against his right. Asian side because he was Asian side. Some, side was wow. holding some of his back. roommates who were Asian, I think he killed those guys, didn't he? Right. If I, I recall correctly, Jeez. I think uh, the roommates that he was staying with up there in Santa wow. Barbara uh, he killed those guys, and they, I believe they were Asian. So, yeah, there's a definitely. I wanted to go back um, tying this into the Big Bang Theory um, because the character Rajesh is. is uh, of Asian descent, uh, Indian. And I, I always thought yes. one of the more interesting dynamics in, in the relationships on that show, and I haven't watched it recently, so I don't know if this still plays out, but he was silenced um, whenever women would come around. That was the gag, a running gag on the show, is that he wasn't able to speak when beautiful, attractive women yes. were around. But the other guys, they had right. normal, healthy relationships with women. Even, even the Sheldon Cooper character uh, had the relationship with Vernon, not Vernon dead. Um, I can't think of her name. Uh, he had a, he had a relationship with a character yeah. and they all did, but for whatever reason, they would use the Rajiv's character as someone who was not allowed to speak, um, when women were around. And I just thought that was very curious when I used to watch that show. So it kind of plays into some of the stuff we talked about. Yeah. 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 He, he, mm-hmm. 
Yes, it's very curious. Yeah, he has to be even geekier than they are, and he also has to not be threatening to the other geeks, so it, that's a good way of marking him as even less yeah, manly know. than the rest of them. And as, as an Indian Asian, I think that there is almost a little bit... Yeah. Like, yeah. they're brown enough that they can almost yeah. overlap no, into I, I, black... I, I, yeah. not, not really, yeah. but... But yeah, there's somewhere in this, this middle. Mm-hmm. And then also the actor, the actor is, is uh, I'd say he's, uh, uh, he, he's the one who looks like a, a male leading man uh, of, of the geeks on the I Big Bang Theory. That. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, he is probably and, the most, most conventionally handsome yeah. one. Right? And <laughs> I, that may be because uh, mainstream TV is not ready for a truly geeky Indian man to be on there, it might not be appealing to look at. So he's he's this weird character who who would be handsome in almost any other setting, except for he has this weird anxiety that where, where does a handsome guy come with this type of anxiety around uh, talking to women? That except for except for to meet certain geek conceits of the writers of the show. And, and I think they probably I think they're probably something deliberate about that. And I also noticed that they they kind of feminize him a little bit too in that show. Oh, big time. His inability to talk to those women mm-hmm. is feminizing. Yeah. But then he, like, he yeah. has a poodle and, you know, he walks his dog and he does all these little... There were with few, his mo- uh, oh, no, no, that's, that's the other guy. That's Sorry. the other guy. He, he, um, yeah. Sorry. he has a lot of... But I think there's also something there about... I think there's also something there about how they must probably almost want him attractive. Because I think there is something to the conceit in the white male geek of the idea that even mm-hmm. an attractive minority yes. geek is still yeah. is still mm-hmm. less than mm-hmm. me. You know, um, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if, on some unconscious level, him being attractive actually helps the white male geek conceit. That they can, uh, well, right, yes, and and you see this again and again in any film or show where there's like a white geek and a geek of color. I, I mean, maybe not any, but I'm thinking of some prevalent examples. I'm thinking of like Napoleon Dynamite, for example, where Pedro takes uh, Tina Majorino, whatever her character is, to, to the dance, but then it's made clear they're just friends. She's going to get together with Napoleon. Um same maybe in uh, office space, right? Samir uh, is kind of like the one of the friends who's the geekiest. And I don't even think he ever has any scenes with women mm-hmm. whatsoever. Only Ron Livingston does. But then you put him, you, then you put an Indian geek in the room with a Korean one. Mm. As For example, I'm thinking now Harold and Kumar. <laughs> and all of a sudden the Indian geek is cool. <laughs> And right, and and it's Harold who has the I can't talk right. to women disease, but there's no white geeks so there's around. No need to even play really to those types the, of dynamics, the but they do it anyway. Which is, yeah, wow, that that's amazing. God, it, a little bit, I guess. True. But I mean, Harold and Kumar is at least a, you know a slight improvement. <laughs> slight, but, I mean, <laughs> right. But it, it's very, it's very, very slight. To be fair. Um, I have a question about, uh, Jews and Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen. Yeah. That's another yeah. Uh, interesting part of the article because they move a little bit further into oh, go the ahead, ethnic. Yeah. Yeah. But not just, not just that they move further into the generally ethnic, um, geek. But they're kind of in the middle because they're not quite ethnic, being Jewish, mm. but they're not mm. quite white either. You know what I mean? They're right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you about that, about um, how Judd Apatow and Team Apatow has kind of elevated the status of geeks, of, of Jewish geeks in the in the narrative. Yeah. Well, they really have. I mean, you know, one of the things in that article sort of has to do with the ascendancy of Seth Rogen in particular as a, but you could also put Jason Siegel in this, uh, that film he did, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, but Rogen did a, a few of these, I mean, Knocked Up kind of being the most famous, where we're basically 
led to believe that a schlubby, you know, slackerish white Jewish male is the equivalent of, you know, some sort of dashing leading man who a woman, you know, played by Catherine Hagel or, or uh, you know, a more traditionally or classically attractive woman who's got her shit together is going to fall for this slubbish, slubbish uh, uh, Jewish male geek. I think in the article we even put that picture, there was a Vanity Fair photo spread done uh, around the time of Knocked Up, maybe 2008, 2009, that shows Seth Rogen... Um, in the crop duster scene from Hitchcock's North by Northwest. So if you sort of think of that as like oh, a pop cultural substitution, Seth Rogen has now taken the place of Cary Grant. Of Cary Grant, you know, who's a very debonair, you know. So I think that's part of what's at play there. And absolutely, Jewishness and geekiness have a, have a long history together. I mean, one thing we also say in the article, and I would want to make sure and say, is that we acknowledge that in real life, Jewish people have suffered a great deal. <laughs> you know, again, we're not saying that hasn't happened or, or doesn't play a role, but I think the kinds of characters we see in Apatow's films they're pretty well assimilated Jewish people and they seem to mostly bring up their Jewishness either as sort of a play for humor, like the whole Eric Bana talk they have at the beginning of uh, Knocked Up where all these Jewish kids are really geeking out on Eric Bana and how cool he was in Munich killing people and stuff. Um, or it's kind of used as a you know, I guess in this case, a legitimate ethnicity, but one that is also easily blurs or blends into the simulated ethnicity of geekiness. Uh, uh, something that's interesting, um, something that was interesting that you said in the article was you point out how the Jewishness in the Apatow movies is kind of used to give a little bit of extra um, cool cred, like like slackerness, like like they um, they're yeah. kind of. Like they're kind of rakish themselves in a way, but <laughs> the slackerness is the rakishness. Like, like for example, like Han Solo's Han Solo's nonconformity was him being uh, uh, a thief, a rogue, a ladies' man. Whereas they kind of have that rakishness, but their rakishness comes from their nonconformity in the form of um, you know not caring about anything but smoking weed. Only caring about right. um, consuming uh, pop culture and talking about pop culture. So I found that kind of interesting right. compared to the evolution of, say, Woody Allen, because because Woody Allen had himself uh, hooking up with attractive, conventionally yes. waspy, attractive uh, women, but his interests were never really shown as redeeming or making him cool. Like he takes. <laughs> That woman in the yes. movie, I forget if it's Annie Hall, I think it was. He takes her to a flea market and he shows her books about death and Yeah, death. Yeah. <laughs> Big subject for him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... It's not shown as something that kind of makes him like a rakish, cool outsider. No, whereas, right. You know, but see, Alan Allen is sort of, uh, you know, he's like the generational touchstone or one of them between two generations. So he's bridging the gap between that earlier version of the comedic kind of outsider, the, you know, the, the tramp, whichever, you know, the sort of outsider. And we're moving toward the rakish Jewish geeky leading man, but he is, he's kind of a midpoint between those. He's still kind of aware that, you know, we're not quite buying it, but on the other yeah. hand, we, we kind of do. I mean, I agree that he doesn't come across as cool, but he still is shown to have a lot of sexual prowess with, as you say, these very classically waspy women. I mean, he, all these women fall for him legitimately, at least, you know, in the narratives of the movies. Well, and I guess even in real life, to some extent, several of his leading women ended up really dating him. So it, it's weird, but it's I, I do agree with you. It's sort of somewhere in between. So he's not quite Mel Brooks, but he's not quite uh, Seth Rogen. Somewhere. 
so that's the end of part one come back for part two in episode 40 take care